ladies and gentlemen, for one of the best sports podcasts in the business, subscribe on YouTube to Shaky Sports Journeys. Hi and welcome to Shaky's Sports Journeys. Um, what a guest I've got for you today. You can already see him on screen, but I will introduce him. Um, this is the founder and chairman of Matchroom Sport. It's an absolute pleasure, honour and a privilege to welcome Barry Hearn, OBE, to the show. How are you, sir? I'm good. I'm good. I've got nothing else to do but speak to you, Shaky. So, like... Let's let it rip and give these people a little bit of entertainment, we hope. Let, let's go for it, sir. Let's go for it. So I want to take you, I want to get your memory really, really working today. I'm going to take you all the way back. So I'm talking where you were born, where you grew up, but about the family background and your childhood. Over to you, sir. I mean, it's a pretty bog-standard story, really. I mean... Very working class, obviously, as you know, my wife constantly tells me, don't matter how much money you've got, you'll always be working class. And, and, and to be honest with you, that's how I want to be. I don't want to be any different, you know. So I was born in Dagenham in the East End of London. My dad was a bus driver, my mum cleaned houses, we had no money. My dad died quite young at 44. Um, so I had to go to work. I, I didn't go to university or anything. I probably wasn't smart enough, but. I had to go and bring some money in, same as most kids, you know, and it was a, it was a very happy upbringing, you know, despite my dad was ill a lot, a long time, but I can't remember a bad day. I can't remember a bad day. Kids, they, they get used to the facilities and the, and the ups and downs. They, kids don't know about poverty and, you know, being on the, you know, being on the council protected list, if you like, you know, I mean, we just get on with it, don't we? And, got an orange for Christmas, you thought it was the best Christmas present you ever had, you know, nowadays, you don't get 500 presents, you know, mum and dad are bastards. Uh, very happy life, went to grammar school, was quite, I mean, reasonably smart, very sports motivated me. Um, I'm only a sports promoter because I failed uh, being what I really wanted to be, you know, I grew up wanting to be heavyweight champion of the world. I remember listening to the fights underneath my big clothes at Three o'clock in the morning, coming in from the States on my little transistor radio. Uh, I don't know why. I just, every time I went to the pictures, I was, I spent more time waiting for Pathé News to come up and, and show me, you know, something about Rocky Marciano or, you know, then of course Ali came along and just blew everybody's mind out. And, and these are heroes, as, as all sportsmen and women are. And they have to realise that they are inspirational and they have a duty to be ambassadors of their sport. And that's that's where they can repay the gift that God has given them by making them great. Unfortunately for me, I had gold medal in enthusiasm, but never anything more than bronze medal in ability. Which my ideas of being a boxer evaporated quite quickly when I found out I wasn't particularly good at fighting. It wasn't so bad on the street for 10 seconds, but... <laughs> it was terrible when you do it under rules and regulations. So, you know, a normal, very normal upbringing. Got a big break. Uh, I managed to... My mum told me when I was 12 I was going to be a chartered accountant. And I said, fine. My mother was the dominant feature in our household. Before said, you get to that, though, Barry, I, I read about you. You were a businessman well before, your, you know, from a young age. You were into... You had a little, little businesses going, washing yeah. cars... You had fruit, fruit, fruit and vegetable. Was that 
Was that because you had to grow up quickly and you had to yeah. start providing some money? Yeah, well, I mean, to be honest with you, where we lived, you know, half a mile away up the hill, there were some big houses. And, and I used to go, I used to think, I want one of these, you know. I'm not, you know, I wasn't jealous. I just thought, I want it. And how do you get one? You know, what do you have to do? And it, it became quite clear quite early for me, sort of maybe about 13, that if you're not brain of Britain or a genius, you're not going to discover something major. The best way is just to be a grafter. So I grafted and I thought, this is easy. If it's just a question of work ethic, anyone can do that, can't they? You haven't got to be brain of Britain. I, I wasn't brain of Britain to wash cars, do gardening, babysitting, window cleaning, working on the doors on... Yeah, in those days, it wasn't a dangerous job it is today. But working on the doors at schools and this, you know, clubs and stuff like that, it was anything to make a few quid. And I was never, you know, I never wanted to be poor. I always wanted things, and I, I, in a, not in a nasty way. I mean, I don't like people that scratch nice cars because they haven't got one. Those type people should be locked up. But I want them to want the nice car. I want sportsmen. I want my children. You know, I want them to actually want things to make them get off their backside and go and do some graft. And if it's just basic hard work, I was always unbeatable because I'd, I never stopped. You know, I just, I love, I love the pound note. I still do. I still do. I wouldn't walk past a pound note on the street now. I can't help it. You know, it's in your nature, isn't it? And, and, and I think poor. I think poor in everything I do. It doesn't, it doesn't mean I live poor. But I think poor. I think poor because think customers that I have and obviously business has got a lot bigger but they 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 need value so I've got to think I've got to give them that value because I don't want to lose a customer but then for me personally I'm not frightened of spending money I want value I want to think more so because if I don't if I start getting dirty big bollocks and carried away with myself well then everything I've done is wasted you know it's just not that's not how life should be so I, I want to give value and I want to receive value. And, and whatever that is, it doesn't matter, as long as no one takes the mick out of us, you know? I think working, working class people like me, I grew up with a chip on my shoulder. I didn't like people that spoke nicely. I never, I never heard the final whistle in any football match against a public school because I'd already been sent off. Because someone would say, oh, jolly good job, old chap, and I'd just whack them. You know, and it, it was it took a long time, bit of therapy to get that out of my head, but it was a little bit of working class, him and us, you know. And, and we have, a, you know, that, without being too political, this is a diversity issue. It's very relevant today as well. It's about do people feel that way about black people or immigrant, you know, immigrant people? Do they feel that about women? Do they feel that about someone with another religion? You know, we've all got to learn to live together and encompass that without jealousy and without spitefulness. And, and, I, and I think we've all been through that in one way or another. There's a learning curve. And I had a, a, a deep learning curve, you know, coming from a very restricted background where I, there was a time when you felt a little bit, you know, I'm not getting the chances. I mean, in, we, we talk today about diversity in life and giving equal opportunity to everyone. This is a fundamental of our of natural sport. And it's a fundamental of sport, isn't it? Because we're judged on ability, nothing. No one says, you know, you can be fat, thin, Christian, Muslim, black, white. It doesn't make any difference in sport. That's why I love it. 
It's all about ability. It's about results. Yeah. And if life was like that, if life mirrored that, we wouldn't have a problem in the world. Yeah. And, and, and when you think of it in simplistic terms, that's really what we... So with me growing up in those days, it wasn't the same problems then. The problems were, uh, where did you go to school? Uh, the problems were, what does your dad do for a living? The problems were, how much money have you got? So working class people were in, in a similar situation to people that don't get opportunity today. It was just a different generational problem of diversity. And so it was a, it's a struggle to get out of that environment. And you have to work extra hard to make your case to be treated independently, to be valued properly, you know. And, and that was the, the hurdle that I overcame really when my mum told me to be a chartered accountant. I didn't know what a chartered accountant was. But if my mum told me I was going to do it, I was going to do it because there was no choice. And every time the career master at school said to me, you know, careers, I said, I don't even, I don't even need to discuss it, sir. I'm going to be a chartered accountant. And he said, why? And my mother told me that the man whose house she cleaned told her one day, his quote was, you never see a poor one. And that resonated with me because it fulfilled everything. I didn't want, I knew I was poor, but I was happy. But I didn't want to be poor. I wanted nice things, you know. And suddenly someone's given me a way, shown a light down a tunnel and said, you get to the end of that tunnel, you'll never be poor. And that hit a nerve for me. So my mind was set and I got a lucky break from an uncle who had an accountant. He, he had a little tiny, tiny two-man tiling business, but he got me in there. Because normally from my background, you didn't get a chance to get the first leg on the ladder. And yep. uh, he got me in there as an article clerk. I was doing it six quid a week. Uh, and I just worked. I just worked. So I took all these exams. I, I could never fail an exam because if necessary, I would learn every line of every book, parrot fashion. I might not know what it meant, but I could recite it. And I just grafted. My mum locked me in my bedroom every night from 18 to 21, Monday to Friday. She let me have weekends off, but she literally forced me in my bedroom, locked the door and said, you study, you're going to be something with your life. You've got, you've got to work. And I passed, I was probably the youngest or one of the youngest ever qualified child again. So I was 21. Uh, I wasn't a genius. I just had a work ethic that other people couldn't understand. And I've been like that. And I've passed that work ethic onto my children as well. Um, because it makes a difference. And, and the message there for anyone, wherever you are, no matter who you are. You, people talk about sacrifice. A lot of people use that word without knowing what it means. What it means is proper sacrifice, you know, above everything. You know, someone's got to make their mark in your family. And I'm sad to say that it perhaps doesn't make you the best husband, may not make you the best father, but you're building foundations and you can be a good person later on. But initially, you've got to be selfish. You've got to look after yourself. You've just got to burn the opposition. And I've taken that attitude into my business where... I burn the opposition because I can't, I can't live in my fire. You know, I said to someone the other day, you know, I'm operating at an intensity, at an altitude that other people can't survive on the oxygen level because there isn't any, you know. So you want to you compete with me? That's okay. You better have long-standing duration 
You, you don't need Duracell batteries, mate. You need something atomic to live with me. You've got no chance otherwise. So you qualified as an accountant, led to you becoming a finance director. But then things got really interesting. You, you mentioned earlier on in the podcast that you, um, you'd always had a sporting interest. It'd always been from a, from a young age. Around the 19, early 1970s, you bought a snooker hall. How did that come about? Well, I, I bought a chain of snooker halls. I was, okay. working for, I was working for a fashion design company as their, I'd been headhunted to be their financial director. I, it was a, I was a bit of a fish out of water in the fashion world. <laughs> the first day I walked into this building, uh, saw men wearing what makeup and I could smell marijuana being smoked in the building. And this was, they were two things that you didn't come across in, in the early 70s, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but it was exciting and it was very creative and they were very successful for a period of time. But my job was to diversify the group and I went into, I took them into many different things. I went into property. I was bloody useless at that, lost a fortune. Then we went into clothes. Why is that? It's not like you lose money and something. No, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be losing it now, but I wasn't smart enough then. It wasn't okay. my fault though, you know. Uh, I converted a load of houses in St. Leonard's, but they were the old Georgian houses with about five or six floors. And I forgot that in St. Leonard's in Hastings, near Hastings in Sussex, the average age was about 80. And, and I didn't put a lift in. You know, you'd find old people halfway up the stairs with a flag saying, I want to get to the top. It was, a, it, it was just stupid, you know, but you learn lessons, don't you? Um, I went into garment manufacture and various things, all, all failures, all failures. But then I had a phone call when God smiles on you. He smiles sometimes very broadly. I had a phone call from a, my, my old accountant, who I used to work for, to say they had a snooker business for sale. Was I interested? And that was my that was my quantum moment, if you like. You know, it, it took a long time to do the deal, but eventually I got there. I had to borrow all the money. I started off with this company having money, then they started losing money. So I borrowed all the money and, and I bought a chain of snookers. And as you say, I, I looked around with just common sense, not, not massive brains. Common sense said no one plays snooker in July and August. Um, it's too hot. No air conditioning. Um, the places were pretty lives anyway. Um, so I thought I'll do a snooker tournament for all my members in September. I'll have to practice during July and August to get ready. Good common sense. And along the way, this little tall skinny kid turned up one day and said, can I play in your snooker tournament, Mr. Hearn? And I said, well, you can if you, if you play here twice a week, if you're a regular customer. And his name was Steve Davis, and he changed my life, you know. Six-time six time world champion, Steve Davis, we're talking about here. Um, yeah. what, a, what a player. So, that, so, so Barry, that link-up between you and Steve Davis yeah. is where it really... Really started, yeah. Really started. It was the perfect partnership because Steve... You know, I mean, at that, I mean, he's my best mate for 40 odd years, so he lets me take the piss out of him a bit. He was so boring, I can't tell you. Never opened his mouth, but he was so determined on the snooker table. He was a bully, really. Like most top sportsmen are really bullies. They want to beat up people. 
don't they? Well, not, not, not just the boxers. They want to be much better. And Davis was like that, unique. You know, his dad built, trained him, iron discipline, you know, work ethic, eight hours a day. I mean, I can't tell you what he did. It, it would destroy anyone. But he was the first professional that really put the work in. The, the previous professionals, all of them great players, that were more casual players. They, they might have had other jobs or, you know, Davis only wanted to be a full-time snooker player and he was the first of that breed. And he put the work in and, and we had a, an amazing time. And on the back of that, it was really, Steve, you know, I started doing snooker matches, one, because I, I used to like a bet in those days. So I'd take Davis around the country and, of course, especially in the beginning, we had never heard of him. I mean, you know, you'd go up there and absolutely take their trousers down because the kid was good and, and he never had nerves. You know, he was, he didn't care how much was acting. He, he just handled handle the pressure. Oh, mate, from day one. But then later on, when he got more, better known, I started doing matches against top players, selling tickets. I started doing events, you know, because like most things in life, you stumble onto things, don't you? You know, I mean, I'd made a decision to be a child accountant, but from that one decision, I don't think I've ever forecasted the future so well. You just evolve along the journey of life to become. And I became a promoter because I wanted to give Davis the experience of playing top professionals with a crowd. I also like to have a sizable bet on him and... And we had the, that was probably the most fun part of my whole life, those few years. You know, it was. I bet the banter throughout oh, some of the clubs you went oh, into was, was, oh, was, was incredible. Massive. I mean, we would end up in the car park having a fight with someone afterwards. <laughs> or we'd, I'd always go in and make sure the window and the toilet was open because generally I, I bet more money than I had <laughs> just to make sure I had an exit. Which I didn't ever need, but I always covered my bases. And it was just, yeah, it was electric. It was all very working class blokes. That's where Davis got the nickname, the Nugget, because he was our bar of gold. You know, we'd take him around and people would have their last 50 quid in the world on him, knowing that they was going to get £100 back at least, you know. And that, that was, it was a special bond. Uh, I'll never forget those days. They were, you know... When you, when you come from nothing and suddenly have this talent in front of you that I've never seen anything like. And obviously, over a period of time, not straight away, we become great mates. I'm proud to say he's still my best friend today. I mean, he's now more of a music jockey than a snooker player, you know. Uh, but we still, you know, we, we banter sometimes. You know, we went through a, a golden period spreading the game all around the world and but it gave me the love of doing events and the logistics involved and the staging and the entertainment value. And, and that was in 1982 when I had a sizable offer for the snooker hall business, which by then I had negotiated, as you'd expect. I owned a third of it in 1982. Um, that set me up, if you like. I was 34. I was going to retire. You know, I, I had... I've made enough money. I don't believe that, but no, I know, nor do I. But yeah, you know, it's funny, you know, working class people. I remember my granddad, all, all we ever talked about was when he retires, you know, when he, he spent his whole life waiting to retire. And when he retired, of course, 12 months later, you're dead, aren't you? And, and in a way, 
working class people are always, we're fearful of people taking away what we've earned. We've, we like that with our money and, you know, we're, we're, good, we're savers, we're investors. Uh, but we're also looking for it to end in, a, in some obscure manner. And, and I was a prototype of that generation. So suddenly I've made a chunk of money. It's 1982, I'm 34 years old. I thought I'd just go fishing, play golf, play cricket, do sport, you know, all the things that I've done my whole life badly. Uh, and I did it for about six weeks and I, and I realised I was missing something, you know, I was going up the wall. And I thought, well, you know, Steve, I was looking after Steve and Tony Mio, another snooker player, Terry Griffiths. And I thought, I'll form a little company just to look after them and, you know, give us a good excuse to travel around the world. We might even make a few quid, but it's not important. Just do something we love. And that's how Matram started. Matram is named after the room in Romford that Davis played his big money matches against Higgins and Reardon and Spencer. That was the Matram Club. And Matram is, Matram Sport is named after that place because it was a significant part of my life. And over the years, without really trying, I just acquired other sports that I like. I started off with the, with the with, I, it was a fortunate start. I mean, I'd made enough money to retire on, I thought, in those days. I was a millionaire, you know, and from where I come from, a millionaire, you used to talk about millionaires, you never met one. Yeah. Suddenly I was one. So it's interesting that your first thought was to pack up, not push on, you know. Um, today's world's different. But uh, that gave me the appetite to do events and to choir sports. So I used to play nine ball pool. I do nine ball pool. I used to go 10 pin bowl and I do 10 pin bowl. I love my fishing. I do fish and mania. I don't do motor sports. I don't do tennis. And the simple is I don't like them. I don't play them. I'm no good at it. I don't like them. And I'm, one ingredient I've always done is I maximize my time on things I enjoy. So I will do a small job that I enjoy in preference to a big job that can make me a lot of money because the money is not important as the time. So, right, you know, it's the passion you get. And boxing, I mean, I, I you know, I, I mean, I say, I, I, I stopped sparring when I was 46. So, and, and I'm useless, don't get me wrong. I mean, you know, I don't know if you ever put the gloves on yourself, but. You just, might have had a cut. Just taking a bag, Barry. I, I'm I think not the bag must have hit you back a couple of times because that nose is a little bit off kilter. But <laughs> you see, I, I was more of a runner than a fighter, you know, and I used to love one-to-one. -one. I love one-to-one -one competition. And I'm a competitive person. I used to go home from the gym battered. My wife used to say to me, you know, you've made a lot of money. What are you doing? And I say, I love it. I, I can't explain it. I love it. I, I just didn't technically. I, I wasn't any good. That's all right. But you still carry on. Is and it's a great way to keep fit and in shape. You know, and I'm 73 in June. I don't think I could do three rounds. But in my head, I thought I believe I can. But of course, the reality is we all get old. But you know, I have a passion for sport, and that passion comes across on the events I do. I care about. I care about the people because most of my sports are working class originated sports and I'm working class. So I care about the working class. I want to make sure they have an opportunity. I can't make them win, but I can give them the opportunity. And if they're not good enough to win, they're the same as me. I wasn't good enough to win. 
So fuck off and do something else. <laughs> you know? Barry, you, 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 you talked about the 80s match room. Snooker was booming. Coloured TV snooker was on, was just rising and rising. Um, boxing, yeah. 1987, you promoted the Frank Bruno and Joe Bugner fight. Take me back to, to yeah. that time. Well, I mean, by then, I mean, Matchroom started in 82, and we were on fire all around the world. Japan one week, Thailand the next, you know, Hong Kong, China. I mean, we were, I mean, not we. I mean, I tagged on, so, I, you know, we were getting paid a load of money, and we were being treated like superstars all over the world. Life was good. Being a sort of Gemini and a sports fan, I've always been a boxing fan before anything else, really. Um, as I say, I go back with my heroes and interesting. I mean, the first fight I can ever remember listening to was Rocky Marciano against Archie Moore. And the first Ali fight I ever listened to was Ali against Archie Moore. And I thought, isn't it weird? You know, these guys, they go on forever. But fighters are very special people. Uh, they can be a pain in the arse as well. You can't ever take away what they go through. It's like, you know, you get punched in the face while you're practicing, never mind about when you're earning your living. It's, and it's damaging, you know. I've had fighters like Michael Watson injured. I respect what I do respect fighters, perhaps more than most, because of my own experiences, you know. So I always went to the shows, and they were always shit. You know, uh, mismatches, just, you know, they didn't... The, Vicky Duff and Jarvis Astaire and all these people were doing shows. Yeah, they did the odd good one, but the younger cards were terrible. And as a fight fan, I wanted a bit more. Terry Lawless, who looked after Frank Bruno, said to me once, you know, why don't you do some boxing shows? You know, you love your sport, you love your boxing. And I, I did two little shows with him with Gary Mason that sadly is no longer with us, but Gary was a, a really good heavyweight. Um, two tiny shows and to show you what a stickler I am for numbers I made 634 quid on the first one and I lost 6,118 on the second one but by the time I'd done the second one the drug was in me I loved it I loved it and I was having lunch with my wife at a Chinese restaurant in South End my wife is one of these special people she's proper old school so she speaks her mind she's the scariest person in my world I've dealt with a lot of people that you might find scary. Trust me, they don't come even close. She said to me, I said, I'm, she said one day, well, you know, what are you going to do next? I said, I think I'll have a go at boxing. And she said, so what are you doing about it? I said, well, I'm, I want to make Joe Booker against Frank Bruno. And she said, yeah, you know, no chance. You've got no chance. You don't know anything about boxing promotion. You don't know anyone in boxing. You've got no chance. And it really riled me, you know. And I, I, I said, excuse me. And I left the table and went out to the reception. And because I was working on it. And I said to the girl at reception, can I use your phone? She thought I was phoning for a taxi. I phoned Melbourne, Australia. And a little squeaky voice from Joe Bugner said, you know, good day. I said, Joe, it's Barry Herney. I said, I, I, I do a lot of stuff in snooker. Oh, yeah, mate, I think I've heard of you. I said, I want you to come over to England and, and fight Frank Bruno for me. And he went, oh, it's going to cost you a lot of money. 
I said, uh, well, I'll give you 250,000 pounds. And he went quietly and then he said, and what plane did you want me on? So he was done. And I went back to my wife, I said, I'm halfway there. She said, you'll never get the other half because Frank was tied up with Mickey and the cartel. And I, bet, I, bet the, I bet the restaurant weren't very happy with you when they seen the phone bill. Yeah, I left before that came in. But Frank Bruno was due to fight Trevor Burbick. And it's funny, common sense comes in. Burbick had come over for the fight and he brought his kids with him. And I thought, why are you bringing your kids with you? And then I realised he didn't really want to fight. He wanted a trip to London. Okay. Uh, and he injured his back and pulled out. And I phoned Terry Lawless. And fortunately, Mickey Duff and some of the connections were out of the country. And I said, get Frank round your house. I've got an idea. And I went there with a contract and I got Frank Bruno to sign the contract to fight Bugner the same night, 11 o'clock at night around Terry Lawless's house. Because Frank was fit and he was desperate to have a fight. And it ended up being, well, one of the top 10 all-time viewing records on ITV. 18.7 million people watched it. It made a shed load of money. It was a great fun night. Uh, and I didn't have a clue what I was doing. But by then it was too late. I bet you went home that night, got into bed and said to the good lady, remember what you said to me in the Chinese restaurant? I just made the fight. Yeah, well, in those days, it probably there wasn't so much conversation when we got into bed. <laughs> so, you know, Frank Bruno, Joe Bugner, brilliant. Um, but you've worked with some of the who's who of boxing. I mean, some of the best fighters. Now, all of these fighters I'm a huge, massive fan of. You're talking Chris Eubank, Nigel Benn, Lennox Lewis, Prince Nassim Hamid, Steve Collins. I mean, the fights between Eubank, Ben, Collins... They live on, you know, they, they are, they were special. They, they, they really were the, I'm not saying technically they were the same, but they were the UK version of Leonard, Hagler, yeah. Duran and Hearns in terms of public appeal. And the appeal for those fights, because they were, what I learned was it, it's all right being good, but you've got to be famous to make money. You know, lots of great fighters never made any money. Errol Graham, what a great fire. He was so good, no one wanted to box him. So mm. he never made any money. He didn't have that outgoing, charismatic uh, performance in him, you know. So he never got famous. So uh, sometimes, you know, it's the purists look on the technical skill. You know, lovely left jab, lovely right hand, lovely body movement. But the real fans, which are the mass fans, they're casuals. They'll go and watch Eubank because he was a character. Yeah. Sold every show out. You know, Prince Nazim Ahmed was, he was obnoxiously flash the whole time. But wow, you couldn't ignore him and he could punch like a mule. So they needed to be an entertaining fight, but they needed to have charisma as well. And it taught me so much more for my future career that the whole world of sport is a soap opera. We have to create characters before they can ever get the amount of money that they deserve. Because no one gives you money, do you? You've got to earn it. You're either brilliant technically. In boxing, you've got to be in entertaining fights. But that's a short career. Entertaining fights are short career fights. Because, the, you know, you can't last forever like that. Uh, but you've also you've 
got to have this persona where you sell yourself. And I was quite good at creating the big entrances and the, you know, a little bit of choreographed press conferences, you know. And and I think Eddie's, by the way, as my son now has taken that to another level. But in those days, it was quite new, you know. Well, everyone singing simply the best when you bank walking be, became the reason why a lot of people bought their ticket in the first place because yeah. it was exciting. I mean, Eubank fights were not greatly exciting other than big clashes, you know, with Ben, Watson, Collins. The rest of them, they were okay, but his value was way above everybody else because he was, he'd been created to be this wonderful and enigmatic personality. And, and that has really, in my life, gone on into other sports where I've concentrated on building the personality to enhance the value of their own brand and the event that they are participating in. Uh, because sport does come down to money, unfortunately. I mean, the purists, they never like to hear that, you know. They never like to hear. But it is all about money. I mean, let's be honest. If you're going to be, if you're going to dedicate your life, you've got to have, and, and most people will do that, will still fail, but you've got to have that reason that, I want to be up there where he is, you know. I want to be the Floyd Mayweather. I want to be the Anthony Joshua. You know, and I look at fighters like Lawrence Acoli who's just won the World Cruiserweight Championship, you know, who was a fat five-pound an hour McDonald worker until he saw Anthony Joshua win the gold medal. So that inspiration factor in sport is actually vitally important, you know. Kids that play darts now might have looked on the television and seen... Bill Taylor or Michael Van Gerwen jumping into their big car, but they look like them from around the corner. They look like them in another line. So they know there's a way, but are they prepared to sacrifice? And have they got that little bit of special that only God can give you? Is that? And if they have, they find someone to give them the opportunity. Hello, here I am. <laughs> you said about chore choreograph there. Eubank and Ben wasn't choreographed, I don't think. No, they, no, they really no. didn't like each other. No, they hated each other. They still, uh, I, still, I, I think to this day. I think still... there's there's a certain, I don't think, <coughs> I don't think Eubank as much hates Nigel Ben, but Ben hated Eubank. He just rubs yeah. him up the wrong way, doesn't he? Yeah, well, Eubank, you know, he, he in a way, and Ali did the same thing in a way to phrase it. You know, he demeaned it. He looked down his nose at him. He looked... He considered himself a superior intellectual and things like that, which, which, you know, Nigel Ben just wants to tear your head off. I mean, today he would like to tear his head off, you know, and that's almost you almost had there was almost close to yeah oh yeah I'm happy they didn't because I don't think it would ever be the same again. No, I mean it's uh, it's interesting. I'm I'm really enjoying watching Nigel's son Ben come through the ring the other night. Fantastic. It was absolutely brilliant but I close my eyes and it's almost like I'm watching his dad at certain points and Nigel himself summed it up he's already a better boxer than Nigel Ben was he's got that street in him and that street is something you can't invent street in people it's born in you I mean I'm from the street I've got street I know that I mean I'm not kidding myself my son shouldn't have any street in him at all. He's had a public school education. He's been brought up like a rich kid. He's been spoiled. He's got a huge amount of street in him. Where'd that come from? In his DNA. 
and Connor Ben's the same as Nigel. Once, when you see a fighter like that, Connor Ben, and his dad was the same, when he gets you in trouble, you're in big trouble. Yeah. Because he unloads. I mean, the only way you can get out of that is to chin him as he's coming on to you. Because otherwise, it's going to destroy you. And, and Connor was magnificent the other night. So, you know, it's a building process. It's based on technique. But there's something extra. And that's the same in any sport. To get to a certain level, technique can get you to that level. To get up a, a level more, there's other things you need. One, to achieve the financial success. You need to be a personality. And two, you need to have something God gift gift in whatever sport it is that separates you from the normal superstar. So if you take snooker, Ronnie O'Sullivan is a great, great player, but he's got something special extra. Oh, and, that's, and that's what you can't really describe, you know. But then, you know, you mix in his personality and his, what we call his backstory, you know, and you develop a personality from that. That's when they cash in and make the really big money. Well, Ricky Hatton's perfect example of that. Perfect, perfect. Ricky's a great example. And it, I mean, connected he, with a with a with a normal guy down the pub. Except well, I think that, that to me, Ricky Hatton epitomizes almost the story of darts. Is that when people looked at Ricky Hatton or people look at dart players, they think he looks like someone who lives around the corner. You know, there's not. You know, if you look at a, a polo player, very few working class men will say that. Yeah. So, so Humphrey looks like something. No, it doesn't exist. So we're from the real world. And the great thing about being working class is there's a lot of us, you know. There's a lot of us. So don't worry about the one or two or three or four or five percent. Let's concentrate on if you're running a business, how do I get the most amount of customers? I appeal to the working class. Because there's many of them. Barry, you need to stay back a bit because I'm losing your face and your lovely face every so often on the screen. I know you're a tall man, so you're tied to tie, you're going down. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to mention somebody right now who, um, listen, fellow Glaswegian, had them on recently. Oh, no, 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 big, big chum of yours, the, the, the legend that is Tommy Gilmore. Um, how did how did all that how did all that come about working with with Tommy? Yeah, it was really weird. I mean, he's been my mate for years. I don't know why because he's a, <laughs> a tight-fisted, argumentative, disruptive, dangerous person. When I first the first time I, I'd heard about Tommy Gilmore, not not not, not so necessarily favourable. He doesn't seek friends. People like him out of respect after they know him. But initially, he's an abrasive. That's region, isn't he? I mean, you know, but he's got big family background in boxing or whatever. See, when I when I started promoting Eubank, you know, obviously I got the number one draw. I'm gonna keep him to myself. I'm not I'm not a sharer, you know, I mean I'm I'm an owner. Uh, and I brought him up to Glasgow. I thought I was gonna take Eubank around the country, establish a good marketing ploy establishing strong points elsewhere, not just London, and had, had an opponent for him. And someone said to me, oh, if you're working in Glasgow, you should, uh, you should have a word with Tommy Gilmore. You know, he's big, big in Glasgow, Scotland. And I thought, well, I don't need, I'm, I'm Barry Hearn, I don't need Tommy Gilmore. 
was Tommy, you know. And uh, I went up there and started trying to understand the Scottish market. And after about a day, I phoned Tommy Gilmore and said, what do you reckon about this fight? And from, we, we became friends. I don't know why, because we, we couldn't be more different personalities in some ways. You know, I'm much, much more creative than Tommy. But Tommy runs a really good, tight, efficient business. And the two of us together were, were dangerous. You know, we did that show. We didn't kill each other. You know, we, we all earned a few quid and we put on a great show. And, and Tommy's quite proud of that. He, you know, when he had the scenario. Yeah, he talked about it. We, we had a podcast. He talked about it when your bank came up and you could tell yeah. how it was a big, big moment for him. Yeah. He loved it, you know. But he, again, his he's family have gone back generations in boxing, not, not mine. I had no history. And then over years, every time I went to Scotland, I would do, you know, I would involve him in the shows I was doing because it made, frankly, it wasn't for friendship. It, it made sense. He's a good operator. And, and over the years, we just got more and more friendly and we did more and more shows. I can't ever remember losing money on a Gilmore show. And I've lost plenty of money on other shows. There you go. I remember once, I mean, we've fallen out a few times, but... I can imagine. The, the worst one was I, we had a show in Inverness and security wouldn't let me in because I didn't have a heart around my neck. Okay. And I'm like, this is my show. And the security man and I are about to engage in probably something silly. And I've looked at him and he, I'm coming in, son, you know? And he's like, I can't let you in, Mr. Earth. I'm like, this is my show. And he went, I know. Mr. Gilmore will sack me if you haven't got the right accreditation. <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ. But, you know, at the time, for 30 seconds, I wanted to bash everybody up. But 30 seconds later, I realised that's why he's a good operator. He's very good detail. He's very good. He's very pernickety. But he understands the rules, he's genuine, and he's straight. And if you're straight with me, even if it's news I don't want to hear, then I've always got time for you. If you go around my back or you're crooked, and there's a few people in boxing that have done that, I won't even talk to you for the rest of your life. No, no, no I don't forgive if someone's disloyal, for example. But Gilmore, I've never had a fault in all these years. You know, he's... I told him to get out of boxing because I think he was going to have a heart attack. He gets so emotionally involved, you know, and I was like trying to restrain him. And I told him to get into darts and I think he thought that was going to be easy. He has heart attack watching the darts now instead, you know, because he gets so uptight and tense. I love him. He's a great mate. Um, I wouldn't swap him. And yeah, he's a proper geezer. No, great man. I've had the pleasure of getting to know him recently and he's He's a wonderful, really, really, like you say, straight-talking guy. Says it how it is. They're the best yeah. type of people, I think, anyway. Um, you, you got involved in Prize Fighter as well, 2008. That was another big thing, big venture. Um, I think Tommy had a couple of get a couple of fighters come into that as well. So you were working yeah. with him, you were working together again. Well, I mean, I think we got to a stage where boxing wasn't doing much for me, you know. Uh, you, need, you need top names in boxing to really do the big shows, and I, I like the big shows. And we was going through a period of time, I think Frank Warren was signing quite a good, you know, he had a good number of fighters. I, I spent a few years stealing his fighters off him, and he, 
he repaid me by stealing quite a few fires off me. You know, it's fair enough. Um, but as I as my business grew, Matram as a company, and I started acquiring other sports as well as other sporting events, particularly the darts and the snooker, boxing didn't have the same significance or the same buzz without the Eubanks around and all that sort of stuff. And, and Tommy and I did, you know, we did loads of small shows, which which made some which made some money, but they didn't necessarily give me that buzz, you know. Uh, Tommy would do a show every day. He loves it. It's in his blood. I'm a little bit more selective and I'm a little bit more of a businessman in terms of I'd rather build up something else than waste my time if I haven't got the talent. But when the talent comes along, you're fine. So during that period, I've, I'd seen a, a version of Prize Fighter in Mississippi many years before. And I went and I just thought, well, this might be something fresh. And it actually, it helped turn round boxing Prize Fighter series because it brought in new crowds. It was a different format. Every fight was exciting because it was just three rounds tear up, really. Uh, and we had some big names on it as well. Uh, and it reignited a little bit of my passion for boxing, which was good. And then, of course, you know, Eddie comes into the business and shows me how it should be done and, and has more than reignited my love of boxing because the shows are massive. And, I, you know, I'm a showman. I, I do love massive shows. I'm not a purist person, really, you know. If I was, then I'd just be probably doing amateur shows. You, know? you like the big lights. You like that? I, I need that to get out of bed in the morning, you know. I need yeah. to. We're, we're, we're going to talk about your, your boy towards the, towards the end. You we know, we've got a few more things to cover with yourself. Darts. Darts is, like, it's never been a sport I've been... I was more a snooker man. I, I love my snooker. I love going and playing snooker. I love watching. But even in recent times now, it's like, I have to watch it because all my mates are like, you've got to watch the darts. And, you know, I've, I've got Friday nights and stuff now. I've sat and I've watched the darts and it's... My mates are saying to me, we need to go down, you need to come with us to the Alley Pally. They travelled down. Oh, yeah, yeah. Good 10, 15 of them, Barry, travelled yeah. down, have the full weekend. So they're saying to me this year, you need to come down yeah. with us. But it's unbelievable what you've... What you've yeah, done. I mean, I think, you know, if you try and be detached, you, I'd probably put darts down as my greatest achievement in sport, you know, is... I mean, I've always, we've always chucked a dart in a pub badly, you know, after a few pints we might even, but I, I, I always seem to end up on double one, you know, so I'm no darts player. And, and the darts people came to see me, they'd, they'd had the big split of the amateur and the professional game. They were struggling, they were losing money, and they said, would, would I get involved? I wasn't particularly looking for anything at that stage, but I went along to the World Championships. I walked in there, I saw working class people again, um, great technical skill on the hockey. I looked at the crowd. They were smoking, they were drinking, they were gambling, they were eating dodgy pizzas. This is my world. This is my world. And they were having a good time. They were chatting. They weren't just watching the dogs. No, it was a, a social evening as well. And I turned around to the bloke that had brought me down there. He said, what do you think? And I said, I can just smell money. And I got involved. Bought the company. Well, I bought the majority of the company. 
Not for a lot of money. It was the best investment I've ever made. I believe that if you treat working class people, especially with respect, they will honour that respect in their loyalty to you. And it's and they will go beyond the knock. If you can show them a way out, if you can show them a dream, they'll they'll back you. And the dark players have been unbelievably magnificent to a man because they've all come out where I came out, really. You know, I haven't got too many public school educated darts players, for example. I'm still waiting for them and they're all welcome. Um, but I've got ordinary people who've got extraordinary ability. And I like that mixture. And of course, then we start, as we learn through the boxing, et cetera, talking about building personalities. Okay, so let's start with them. And this all goes back to the early snooker days. I got eight snooker players in a room once and said, guys, You've got to understand your role. You're all great players. Good luck. Best man will win on the day. You're all managed by me. But you all need a storyline. And we went through each one of them. And we said, Davis, you're the boring one. You wear white shirts, black suits. You don't talk. You sip water. Griffiths, you're from Wales. All people from Wales think they can sing. So you will sing under your breath. You will comb your hair. And, you know, yep. Dennis Taylor, you're the funny Irishman. You will tell jokes. Jimmy White, you're the artful dodger. You can't read or write, but you can work an eight-hole accumulator out faster than anyone I've ever seen. Tony Mio, you're the Italian that cries because you're emotional. And they all got a character to play. So we transferred that into darts and said, right, you know, you, most of them had nicknames already, but we said, right, you need your proper walk-on music. You need to look this, you need to do that. And over a period of time, we didn't change anybody. We just took their character and expanded it. And they rose to the challenge because everyone wants to be loved. Everyone wants to be the center of attraction. Everyone believes in themselves. So they produced this amazing soap opera. It wasn't called Coronation Street. It wasn't called EastEnders, it was called Darts. And then the man in the street watches it on TV and says, I think I'll have a night at the dark. And they'll have a drink and they'll have a bet and they'll buy a dodgy pizza or something and they'll have a great night value. Think poor, go back to what I started off talking. Yeah. So yeah. an average working man, he don't want to spend he hasn't got the money to spend fortunes and everything's getting too expensive, isn't it? Premier League football, ringside tickets at boxing. But at the darts, we keep the prices as, as close to reasonable. Well, they're still, they're still relatively expensive. But, you know, I think I call it the £100 ticket. So your ticket might cost you 30 quid. You're probably going to have six, seven, eight, nine pints during the night. Let's say another 30 quid. You're going to have a 20 quid bet and you're going to spend a tenner or so on pizza or a burger or something. It's a £100 night. And the average working man, that's just about, I don't want to spend any more, but I'm going to tell the old lady I'm going out. But me and my mates, you know, £100. You don't do it every night. When you do it, it's special. So I've got to give them a special night, make sure the whole occasion is properly, make sure the lighting is good, make sure the screens are top quality, make sure they, they can have a controlled explosion of excitement 
and make sure most of all that they leave the venue with a smile on their face, having had value for money by thinking poor. I had John McDonald on just mm. recently. Um, a quote, I quote the great man, Barry has an amazing knack of employing the right people. Yeah, of course. And he's, once you're loyal to him, he's very loyal to you. And obviously, he, he, uh, you'll need to give it a listen. Um, it's, uh, he talks a lot about you, Barry, on it. Um, but how's, how do you, how do you, how do you hear companies all the time saying it's hard to find the right people? How did you, how did you? Well, I, I mean, I, I grow the right people. I don't find them. So I know very, very rarely, just a handful of times in the last 40 or 50 years, have I hired someone with experience. Generally speaking, in my business, if you're good, you end up doing things on your own because you're good. And if you're not good, you end up working for different companies, which is okay. They're, they're a, that's a job. But the knack is to find young people that have that little bit of twinkle, that little magic, that little extra determination, that little desire to commit properly and sacrifice and a dream of being, I want people to be me. I mean, I know it sounds big headed. I want people to be me. I want people to want my job. I want them to show me that they're better than... So I had a kid that came out of university and worked in a local newspaper. I gave him a job as a press officer at Lake Norrin Football Club, very small role. Lake Norrin's not the biggest football club in the world, for those that don't know it. Uh, I liked the way he looked, I liked the way he worked, I liked his commitment in time, never went home. That's always a good starting point. You know, if you want to be more productive, start an hour earlier and finish an hour later. No, it's only common sense. And eventually, I liked him so much, I made him chief executive of Lake Norrin. He was the youngest chief executive in the football league. Oh, yeah, league. I heard about that, yep. Name's Matt Porter. He's now, um, and when, he, when I felt he was ready, I made him chief executive of the PDC. He's done an outstanding job. Frank Smith joined me when he was 16 years old running pizzas around for people playing poker in my poker tournaments on TV. And people liked the kid. He was 16. I think he was 15. And he asked me, when I, when I leave school, can I have a job? I said, no, oh, give me a ring. I get rid of him. Give me a ring. Three weeks later, he phoned up, said, I left school in 16. I said, I don't employ a 16-year-old son. I mean, but, you know, keep me in mind. And Eddie said, just something about this kid. Everyone liked him. Nothing was too much trouble. Why don't we give him a little job? He's now chief executive of Matchroom Boxing, and he's all over the world. He's one of the best operators I've ever seen. I would trust him with a contract more than a lawyer and a set of accounts more than an accountant. And he's never had a day school in his life on those. Emily Fraser is another little kid that is a pal of mine, was a poker player. Girl wanted to work in special events. Started off making cups of tea. She's managing director now. Wow. She's done unbelievably well. And, and they're just three names out of, I don't know how many people work for Matrim, 150, something like that, all spread around. They're three. I've got loads of others. I could, I could go on for hours. But they've been handpicked for something special in their personality rather than their technical ability. 
something you're that about, says you're about seeing people evolve. You want yes. you you don't want I them want, to just no. I want to give them. I want to give people the chance I had, whether they're sportsmen or employees. You know, I want opportunity. If I'm not good enough, if I'm not good enough to take advantage of the opportunity, or they're not good, that's fine. But don't ever tell me you didn't have the chance. If they're not prepared to make a commitment. If they're not prepared to sacrifice. That's fine. Some people want to be nuns. Some people want to be teachers. Some people want to be nurses. That's a calling. That's fine. Obviously, certain people want to be entrepreneurs. Want to be business people, want to grow, want to develop. Fine, they need opportunity to do that. If they get the opportunity and fail, they can't complain. Um, I'm inundated with sportsmen all the time. You know, oh, I've lost my tour card. You know, two years is not long enough to learn the snooker world or the. So fine. If you've got anything about you, if you've got the character, you'll bounce back. If you haven't, go and find another job, son, because you ain't good enough. And that reality. The one person you have to tell the truth to always is yourself. Yeah. You look in the mirror and you're letting it take a proper man. Look in the mirror and say, I fucked up. Mm -hmm. Or I'm not good enough. Horrible things to say to yourself. But you're a better person for saying it. And other people look in the mirror and go, I'm not good enough at the moment, but I will get it. I won't be denied. They're the type of people I like to remember. Yeah. You mentioned Leighton Orient, 1995. You took over. Um, you held the position until 2014. When you took it over, they were in a total financial crisis. You know, things weren't very stable. Um, and during your time there, Barry, you stabilised things. The finances got better. They went up a level in the leagues. Yeah. <laughs> was that just a passionate buy for you? Was yeah. Leighton in your blood? Crazy. Right? I've told everybody, never buy a football club. Never, ever, ever buy a football club. And these people come to uh, you never forget the first football team you go and watch. Moffat at 11. My mum told me I had to go to see Lane Orient. I couldn't go to Arsenal, Chelsea, Tottenham, West Ham. They were big clubs, you know. Lane Orient was a family club. And people in the East End, they were happy for their kid to go there. It was safe, you know. But once you go to a football club, they become your club. Not for a day, they become your club for life. Even now, you know. I mean, I don't go as often as I like to. I'm still the president, but... I own the ground, so it gives me a, a little bit of interest as well. But I wouldn't have gone into any other football club. They got in trouble. I, I did a big stupid thing. I, they said, they were very smart. They said, come and see the ground and look at the potential. Well, potential is a terrible word because you can't define potential. It's in the head. And I've gone there. As soon as I've walked out there, I started thinking, I used to stand over there. Oh, I used to watch this. Tommy Johnson, he's a Scottish man, played centre forward for Lake North. He was my hero, centre forward, you know. I was same type of centre forward, not very good, but a handful. Uh, and the next thing I started thinking, you know, it's got potential, this place. <laughs> uh, my wallet and my heart merged, and it was fatal. But I did run it as a proper business, and I made progress, and we ended up building three new stands out of the four. We never borrowed a penny. We made, we used our own money or my money. And it didn't because I ran it. I, I ran it as well as I could, but I could see that football wasn't really for me. At a community level, it was for me. But of course, the competitive nature inside you wants to be bigger, wants to be more successful. And I knew what that was going to entail. It was going to entail a whole chunk of my family money which I hadn't worked my whole life 
to give to a football club. And so I decided after 19 years, I've done my shift. I sold it to a maniac, which I shouldn't have done. But he, I knew he had loads of money. I didn't know he was quite as mad as he was. Um, he paid me a load of money. He put a load of money in the club. Unfortunately, he didn't know what he was doing. Uh, and for that, they got relegated to divisions. And they're now back with some good owners. They've got some nice people in, in control. And the club has stabilised again. And, and, and may well be, this year may be asking too much. But I think next year, if I was a better man on football, I would back Orient to get promoted next year now. Because I think they're, they've got it just about ready to go now. They're <laughs> sensible. But, but again, it's a horrible job being football chairman. The fans are your friends when you win. They want to shoot you when you don't. They want you to put all your money in, don't you know, irrespective of whether it's sensible or not, because it makes them happy. Uh, I, I don't. It was funny the first time I went there. The first fans meeting I ever held at Leighton Town Hall. I was in a quandary. I had negotiated a brilliant deal to buy the stadium for £300,000. No money at all. The council screwed up on their valuations and I took advantage, of course. And I asked the fans, I said, I'm going to invest another £300,000. I want to give you a choice. Would you rather I bought the stadium so that our home is safeguarded forever? Or would you like me to buy a new centre forward? I said, let's have a vote on hands. I would say 90% of the hands voted for the new centre forward. And I said to him, that this vote is one of the reasons why I will never listen to the fans. Yeah. Because you, you don't know what you're doing. And I bought the ground, obviously, which ended up, uh, I bought the ground for 300 grand. And within 18 months, I got permission to put up four blocks of flats that brought in eight and a half million and stabilised the club completely and built a lovely ground out of it without borrowing money. It was a no-brainer, you know. Uh, but uh, most of the fans would still always go for the centre-forward. It's, it's a weakness, but yeah, that's, that's why they've, that's they've, that's they've got... The they built the future and it guaranteed our survival. Surviving at lower league, as you know, in Scottish football, it's in all over the all over the place. Survival is, is the most difficult thing. There's only a few clubs that dare to have uh, an optimistic view of the future, because football is a fundamentally flawed business. You're basically getting as much money as you can and give it to as few people as possible. It's interesting you say that. Sorry to interrupt you, Barry. You came up to Scotland once, I heard, uh, yeah. and you did a presentation, and basically told them. <laughs> Basically told them that this doesn't work because of this, 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 and this. Did anything come of it? Did they, did they, did they implement no, it? Yeah, it made a few people laugh at the time and everyone said, I'm, you know, it was quite funny because I think, I think they brought me up to be the pre-lunch banter man to make everyone laugh, you know, say a few funny stories. And on the way up, I was thinking, I was thinking about what I was going to say. I never prepare speeches ever. I find it's better to come off the top of your head. And I just looked at Scottish football and, you know, I thought, you're in a mess. And I just thought to myself, I'm going to tell you. As you get older, you tell the truth. 
Isn't it funny? You, know, you tell lies when you're young because you're trying to get somewhere, trying to get an edge or, you know, make something happen. And I just told the truth. And, and the guy that hired me to go up there um, to be free dinner entertainment, I think, I think it might have cost him his job <laughs> because I just went up and said, look, you're all shit, you know, and until you realise you're shit, you're not going to be able to do anything about it. And that's about looking in the mirror, saying, where are we with Scottish football? Uh, well, we're not where we should be, are we? And, you know, and, and there's some basic common sense ideas you weren't doing. I mean, even, you know, I won't go into the whole speech, we'd take for hours, but even on small things like you can have a drink in a pub outside a football ground, but you can't have a drink inside a football ground. Well, it's the same person having a drink. So you're telling me I can have 10 pints in a pub outside a football ground and then go into the football ground. You know, this is nonsense. You should be controlled better. You know, called security. And, and, and by the way, punish people to break the rules. I'm the big punisher. But give them, don't take the mick out of them. Give them the opportunity to be respectful. Give them the opportunity to make the place their own. Give them the opportunity to build a proper business. And there's lots of little things like that, you know, with, you know, the investment in youngsters and grassroots and growing the future. People are too busy surviving in Scottish football. They don't get enough time to take a step back and look at the bigger picture. Where, where can we go? What can we do? Who, who can help us achieve our objectives? And the objectives are not all on the playing field. The objectives are, what are we really here? This is a question you ask people in life. What are you really here for? Why are you here? Just going through the motions until you beg it. Uh, you know, no. What is a football club there for? My my concern with football clubs is they don't serve their own community well enough because that's what they're here for. They're not here to win the European Cup. They're not here to win the Scottish Cup. You know, they're here to serve their community and to build a fan base built around that. And that, that fan base will stay loyal to you if you treat them with respect. Uh, don't start me talking about Scottish football stories. Listen, I'd love, to, I'd, love, I'd love to see you back up and give one of those speeches again. You know that <laughs> a man with your a man with your knowledge is uh, would would be a, would do would do any organisation a good good service. Something I want to touch on before coming to the back end of the pod. You had a wee bit of a stumble around ninety two ninety three, Barry, where you you had some fina financial little financial issues came into play. You also, yeah. suffered, you also suffered a, suffered a heart attack yeah, as well. Yeah. It uh, was probably, the, the financial stuff was at 88, 89, 90, okay. during that recession. And the reason I had that is, I had this, sounds a bit evangelical, but I had this vision. I'd been working in America, as I said, with this textile business. My job was on the textile business, the fashion business I was employed by. I did the contract. So good experience for learning negotiation techniques. But whilst in America, I turned on the telly in my room and saw ESPN. And I saw other sports stations, full-time sport. We didn't have anything like that in the UK. You know, if you got 20 minutes on Grandstand, you were lucky. You know, there was tiny, it was only the big events. So I came back and thought, sooner or later, this attitude of having full-time sports channels is going to come to this country. And when it does come, they won't have any product. So I started investing in product in 88, waiting for this moment. It, it didn't come in 89. <laughs> we had a recession. 1990 was the launch of Sky. So that 
the launch of Sky was probably the second most important part of my life after meeting Steve Day. Because suddenly I had a broadcaster saying, what have you got? Well, you can't say to someone like me, what you got? Because I've got ideas that I haven't even thought about yet, you know? So I went to Sky and they gave me hours. They gave me some money, but they gave me hours. But it was a lot of investment and I probably overstretched myself in that time. And it was quite a lot of pressure as well. And you throw in, you know, you throw in a little art attack or whatever. They come along every now and again. Well, you know, you've got a choice. When my dad had his first art attack, they told him to sit in a chair and don't move for three months. That was the treatment in those days. He had six heart attacks before he died at 44. Nowadays, treatment's better. You know, fitness is important. You know, so you've got to live the right life. And then you, as you can see, I've had one more, only another small heart attack. I'm up to three stents at the moment. I'm, I'm good. Uh, I, but I don't think about it at all. It's funny. I never think about anything that's, that's in the past, ever. I never think about anything with regret. It's happened. I've made a load of mistakes. I reckon I'm, I make dozens of mistakes, but I make thousands of decisions. So I'm going to get some wrong, of course. I'm going to upset some people, of course. That's life. Do I care about it? Not a monkey, mate. I can just be me. And if it's not good enough for you or it's not good enough for someone else, you have your opinion, you know, fine. I don't have an issue, but I never look backwards. So, you know, you go through experiences of life, but you must be focused on where you want to get to, not where you've been. I need to get this in there. Cricket. Yeah. I think you've got a cricket team. You ever looking for a left-handed top-order batsman? Give me a shout, Barry. But is that another big one? Uh, you know, I mean, I, I played a bit, oh. played a couple of World Cups. Is you? Yeah. I, You're I, in, mate. You're I, in. I, I can talk to you about it when we fit, in a second when we finish. Oh. I'll, I'll talk myself up. But yeah, I played, um, played a bit of cricket in my time. So I hear you've got this this uh, regular cricket match. Tommy was actually telling me about it. Yeah. Is that an annual thing? Yeah, well, I, I mean, yeah, this sounds funny from where I'm from, but of course I have, an, I have my cricket ground on my estate where I live in England. So. Absolutely. And of course it's absolutely nuts, you know. It's a really... Good death. Oh, yeah. Great batting track. Great batting track. But it's a village team. And when I, I moved into this house 20 years ago, my wife breeds thoroughbred racehorses. That's her living, her, her job. And she's very good at it. She's actually got one also at the moment that's throwing winners for fun. I mean, she won the Dubai Gold Cup last Saturday. She won the French. She read the winner of the French Derby. Oh, wow. You know, she's come second in the English St. Ledger. She's a, she's proper. But part of this estate, if you like, was this cricket ground. And, oh, you know, we've made a few changes. We've built a new pavilion. We've got, we've, we just bought our, our first proper electronic scoreboard. Oh. We've got these beautiful covers all over the ground. We're right. I mean, it's, it's, but I've played cricket my whole life. I mean, it's been my number one sport, really. I mean, I started when I was 12. I played up to, you know, a reasonable standard, not your standard, probably. I played up to county seconds, that sort of level, you know, Essex. And I still play now. I've just been picked for the Essex over 70s and my first oh, matches nice. in 10 days' time against North Ants. And I'm excited about it. I'm pretty chit now, by the way. I have a bit of trouble seeing the ball. I used to be a quick bowler. Now I'm an off-spin bowler going to where I don't even care if I don't bowl. I'm, you know, I get a few runs every now and again. I just love the game. I love the game. 
I love the game. Um, I've never promoted anything because I always found the authorities were very restrictive on new ideas and new people. They wanted to stay in control. Uh, and it, frankly, it never materialised. But I would have done some cricket at one stage. And who knows what the future is. But, you know, we've got the 100 coming in now, which is an innovative idea. I'm not so sure whether it's going to work. But I think it's good that they try because you need to try the problem we've got in sport generally is amongst young people is it takes a long time to be good. So sports like cricket, tennis and golf in particular are going to be suffering over the next 10 years while kids just won't allocate the number of hours it takes to play. You know, they like passwords. One of the reasons why darts has been so successful is you can play 10 minutes of darts and have some fun or you can play 10 hours. It's your choice. But you want to play cricket, well, you've got to commit. I and mean, I used to play four days a week. And it's four days, isn't it? Four days, four evenings. And, you know, you put in selection on a Monday. You put in a bit of groundwork on a Wednesday. It's a full-time job playing cricket if you want to play four days a week. Three or four days. I've seen, so, I've seen many seen many a guy in the changing room on a Saturday afternoon when it's been raining for the last three hours, getting a phone call from the missus and saying... The kids are going mental. Yeah. What are you still doing there? And he's like, the umpire's not called it off yet. And they're like, it's no, no. pissing down outside yeah. at home. You know, those no. you must have must have seen a few poor blokes. Well, he should have he should have said to the missus, and you should be here doing the teas. Well, you do what you're doing at home and get those kids over because I want to put them up in the nets and throw a few balls down. I used to play cricket with Eddie in my back garden every single night. And I used to bowl flat out to him when he was about 10. And yep. I was I was reasonably pacey, not not super fast. But, you know, cricket is just a lovely game. You make a mistake, it's you against the bowler, it's you against, as a fielder. You know, there's so many connotations about character building in, yeah, you know, in any sport. You know, even sports like fishing, they're character building. You've got to have patience. You've got to have dedication. You know, it doesn't always happen. You've got to live with disappointment. You've got to live with days when you don't catch nothing. And then you get that little bit of excitement when you do. These things build character, and sport generally builds the character of a nation, which is one of the sadnesses for me that politicians never really understand that. Mm. I think we should put as much money into sport as we put into defence budget, because defence safeguards the country, but is the independence, the liberty of the country. Sport safeguards the character of the country and makes the kids of today what the men will be tomorrow. Because you learn about yourself during sport, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and you, and you adjust and you and you try to improve. All you all you can ever do is be the best you can. You know, again, if I made Essex second eleven, I was never going to make Essex first eleven. I wasn't good enough, never. But now, can you believe it? I'm buying my kit tomorrow for the good Essex. I'm playing North Ants. Um, and, you know, I'm going to probably, I'm going to have a net before I go, because I haven't, I haven't had a bat since the end of last season. And I'm looking at my schedule and thinking, I can do it. I can do a two-hour net net. And I'll do it, you know. And I'll, you know, and I'll be nervous. That's what I love about it. I'm nervous walking out to the crease. It's not, it's not a laugh. I'm nervous, you know. Yeah. I'm, I'm, every time I play in a, in a golf, I mean, my golf is, I'm a 20 handicap golfer. Every time I play, as far as I'm concerned, on that first tee, I'm shooting subpar. Yeah, and that's but that's how you've got to be to get something out. Absolutely, Absolutely. Mr. Eddie Hearn, your 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 son, your pride and joy. 
Hmm. Came into boxing. Now, I said this to you before we came on. I didn't yeah. always start a fan of Eddie because Eddie promoted, his first fighter was uh, McCluskey. Yeah. So he managed to get a fight against Amir Khan. And I remember Eddie came out and he was, a, you know, he was he was rubbing up, rubbing everyone up a bit the wrong way. And he was obviously out to make, make a name for himself. And then obviously he had Kel Brook and Kel Brook and Amir Khan. You know, again, I was I was all Amir Camp, Amir Khan. But as time went on, I just started warming more and more and more to Eddie and, and what he's doing with matching him. He is through the roof now, Barry. I mean, he's he's got He's on the verge, we all hope, of uh, maybe by the time this comes out, which will be shortly, it'll be it'll be announced. He's on the verge. Maybe. Maybe. Anthony yeah. Joshua against Tyson Fury. Yeah. He's got Canelo Alvarez, which and he's and he's made the fight with Billy Joe Saunders, which is I mean, those two fights alone, they're super fights. The back garden, that was inc- that was unbelievable. 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 Like, how he pulled that off in the peak of the pandemic. I will never know. The the thing about it you have to understand is like a lot of this will, and I hope when people listen to this, they'll start seeing the same messages and stories from other stories inter intermingle, you know. So when we talk about characterization of sports people to make them more famous and to make them more money, uh, it's that it works the same for promoters. You need to have, you know, a, a boring promoter ain't gonna sell any tickets. You don't need to be loved. You need to be noticed. And I think Eddie, listen, from not on this chair, but from eight years old, Eddie would be standing behind me while I'm on the phone to Don King, Bob Aaron, and kill that. He would be listening. Me shouting and swearing, threatening, hollering, begging, whatever. He'd love it. He'd put the gloves on as father and son we'd met about, but he loved the business side. And he was a decent heavyweight as an amateur. He was the last person I went in the ring with when I was 45 or 46, and he was 18 and 16. And we had a proper fight, three rounds, because I wanted to find out what type of kid he was. I didn't want him to be one of the people I used to batch up when I played football. Public school, dad's got money, you know. And he was very leery as a kid. He had plenty to say for himself. I hit him with a right hand that would have knocked out most people. And he stood still. And I thought at the time, I could have a problem here. He dropped me twice in the second round. We never had the third round. I left the gym much happier than he was. He proved the point that I always felt was there. And I needed to know for sure. So respect is the word that keeps coming back in his conversations. So when he started off, he'd seen me work. He'd been with me. I took him everywhere. I took him to Hong Kong for the Hong Kong fiasco. I took him to what to Germany to watch Johnny Nelson. I took him to the States as a kid, you know, and he was mixing with these people as a 13, 14, 15 year old kid. Some of them became his subsequent, became his friends, you know, Francis Ampufu and things like that. So he had the background. Did he, he didn't have enough knowledge of the business end. He was a very fast learner because he's got the street in his DNA. So once you get into that, you've got to be noticed. There's no point. If you're good, there's no point in life being good and staying quiet. You've got to shout it from the rooftops. You will upset a few people because they won't like you. But later on, like you've done, you turn around and you'll think about it. And you go, you know what? 
he's good, that kid, you know, and he is. I've got to tell you, forget he's my son. I don't treat him in business like he's my son. In business, we're workers together. I treat him harsher than anyone who works for me because I expect more. That's And I want more, you know, and he's delivered at every level. So, of course, I'm very proud of him. I'm proud of my daughter that she... She was the first female producer of Premiership Football on Sky. You went there for six years, and when she achieved that, I said, you're ready. She now heads up my TV platforms around the world. Wow. Charge of matrimony. Different personality. She's quiet. She's got two kids. She likes to be in the background. More behind wants, the scenes. Eddie wants the limelight. So it doesn't matter. I said to him from day one, don't worry about what people think. Worry about what you're achieving. You know, Are you, are you making a fight? I mean, McCluskey, I remember I was, I had to be restrained in the McCluskey fight simply because that fight should never have been stopped in a yeah, million years. controversial. Very and I told, I was going to whack one of Amir Khan's boys because he was giving it all this. And I was going mental. And Tony Sims got one arm and Eddie got the other. I said, calm down, Basil. I wanted to kill it. I thought I'd never knocked anyone out in front of 30, 10,000 people before. This was my big career chance. But you have to have passion and you have to believe in your product and you have to sell it from the rooftops because you're trying to make a name for yourself. What he's achieved over those years, he's softened some of things. He's put a lot more humour into his promotional activities, which is also a very good selling sign. You know, the, the, the no context hern on, on social media oh, yeah, has I become... Watch, I watch a lot, I watch a lot, I watch a lot of them. But the most important thing is he grafts his nuts off 12 hours a day. That's the thing. That's the, that's the, you know, anybody that says, so people say Barry Hearn, you know what? I respect Barry Hearn. He came from very, very little and he, he became a millionaire. Oh, Eddie Hearn, he's born with a silver spoon in his mouth. Silver spoon, yeah. He might, he may well, he may well have been born. He in was, he was. But the guy's on a jet and a plane. Yeah, I mean, you you stream one day he's in London, the next day he's in Miami. Oh, yeah. He's here, he's there, he's there. He's well, making he's, he's all over the states this week. He's going to see Canelo because they've become great mates as well. And yeah. he's a he's a very personal young man anyway. So once you're in his company, you quite enjoy it. Canelo, yeah. he loves him to death, you know. Uh, AJ loves him to death. They're mates as well. Yeah. But because our operations always been built. Largely on integrity. We we pay people on time. We pay them the proper money. We're not over greedy. Rather than make a fortune out of one show, we'd rather make ten times a fortune out of a hundred shows. You know, so there's more for the fighter. You know, you've got to look after the talent, and they've got to respect you, and they've also got to understand that we can't make a profit because we're in a sustainable business. But we don't need to rob them, which is why we very very rarely lose fighters. Sometimes there'll be opportunities for them elsewhere. But you know what? They'll come back afterwards because they know where they get looked after. And if he makes a point, I mean, he said to that Lawrence Coley years ago, when he first started, he couldn't, I mean, he couldn't fight. He was terrible. And then he said, you win a world title, I'll buy you a Rolex. I've seen that video. That was yeah. awesome. <laughs> Last week, he spent 30,000 pounds on a Rolex to give him a Rolex. He says, says, Dad, I mean, what are you doing giving him? You know, you, we just paid him a lot of money to win the World Cup as well. He's going to make a fortune. He went, I promised him. That's all I want to hear. You live yeah. to what you promise him. So the work ethic carries him forward now. 
And whereas he has this ability as a great promoter to appear almost unrehearsed, he's given a lot of thought to it at every level. He's a pro. It's a bit like you doing what you're doing. You didn't come on here, and this isn't the first time you thought about talking to me. You made some notes. You've thought, I put some work in. All right, too, because otherwise I'm going to run all over you like a, you know. <laughs> but, you know, it's, a, it's called being professional. But it all goes down to that DNA, street DNA inside us, and the ability to work hard. You know, we, we, we talk all the time, obviously. We're very, very close. Uh, he sounds a lot like me on some occasions, but he's added his own dimension to it now. He's, he is seriously better than I've ever been. But I don't see him slackening despite the fact that we're doing, as a company, you know, we're probably the biggest sports promotion company in the world now. It, it, it's an achievement from where we are, but he's going to take it to another level. I've always referred to him as Silver Spoon Kid, trying to keep his feet on the ground. And he turned around and he said, yeah, but you did give me a Silver Spoon. I've just turned it cold. And that's true. And when I say, people say to me, oh, well, you know, he's your boy, he had a big chance. I say, well, firstly, it's every parent's duty to give their kids the best they can give. That's what being a dad's about. But secondly is, don't blame the kid. He can only play the cards he's dealt with. It's what he does with those cards. will tell you what the kid's really like. And when I see, I said to him, we was, we was away last week. And I said to him, how many, got my, my phone out, said, how many hours a day do you spend on your phone? Because I'm, I'm, I'm critical of myself. I'm three hours a day, thereabouts, on my phone. I think it's too much. Three hours a day of talking and, you know. It was 12 and a half hours. Every Doesn't surprise me. You know, I'm like, that's got to stop, son. You know, you've got to slow that down. I mean, I'm sure it's not even healthy. He said, it's difficult to ride a merry-go-round with one foot on the floor. Then. You're either on it or you're off it. I made my choice. Enough said. How do you feel about the fact that obviously Eddie's main attention just now is on the boxing? You, I actually seen he was talking about it recently, just when he was over, and I think it was Jabro the, the the recent Dillian White fight, and he said, "You know, my dad's slowing down now. You know, he's coming soon. I will take over all the business." Yeah. How how comfortable are you with seeing him taking over the the darts and everything else? Has he has he got a good 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 gra grasp of that? Yeah, I think so. Um, I mean, business is business. People blow business up to be much more complicated than it is. It ain't that complicated. It's common sense. Just common sense. You know, bring in more money than you spend out. That's a good start. You know, have some good ideas, but don't don't risk. I'm, I'm risk averse. If I'm an accountant, Eddie's not so risk averse. When he he came in my office and he went, I've had an idea, and I, my office looks out over my back garden. Said, see that garden? <laughs> Said, I'm going to make that fight again. I'm like, yeah, oh, oh, don't give me that. Wait. I said, where's the, where's the dressing rooms? Where's the thing? Where's, I'm going to build this, build that, build this, build that. I said, have you any idea what that's going to cost? And he went, yeah, about 1.2 million quid. I went, are you off your trolley? And he went, yeah, it's a great idea, though, isn't it? And I looked at him and I went, it's a great idea. Let's do it. You know, now we're lucky that we can afford to lose money if we have to. Mm -hmm. Ended up making a load of money. 
It was just a brilliant idea. And, bril and brilliant ideas don't cost anything. You don't have to buy a brilliant idea. You get it through passion and through thinking about and caring about your business. And Eddie thinks and cares about, he will be, he will be the UFC of boxing, right? So already we're doing shows in Spain and Italy. We've now signed match from Mexico. We're going to be doing match from Australia. We will end up, I think, 2022, I would guess we'll do over 100 shows. Wow. That's incredible. And, you know, he can't be at all of them, but he'll use his time. This week, he left this morning. I spoke to him yesterday. We closed off a lot of big deals, very big deals in the last 24 hours. So it's been nonstop, mostly through the night. Uh, he was on a plane this morning, and I think he's. We've got a show with Andrade on Saturday yeah, against Liam Williams. Liam Williams, good fight. Williams has got a chance. Andrade is very awkward. Like, yeah. Um, but I think he's in three or four different states between tonight and Saturday night, uh, and he'll be home Monday morning, and then we go again. You know, yes, anyone anyone that says Eddie Hearn's just got a silver spoon, it's a bit, it's a very harsh, harsh comment. No, but it's understandable he's because currently, yeah, he's currently traveling all over the world, putting on yeah. entertainment for everyone. Well, we, we we were together in the we had a meeting in in the Caribbean last week, and he sent me. He had to be in New York quickly, and he had, he had to go economy. Well, he's six foot five and he's eighteen stone. You know, he sent me a picture of his seat. You know, <laughs> might as well. Could have put his knees around his neck. He was no, said, I can't. When he got off the plane, he said, I can't walk. I can't walk. Hey, look, we're lucky people. As long as we don't get carried away with ourselves and realize that God smiled on us and we are lucky. Yeah, we've put in our shift as well. You still need that little bit of luck, don't matter who you are. And right place, right time. What we've done by surviving COVID in particular is the most impressive. Yeah, very impressive. We've kept people in work, whether they're darts players, snooker players, boxers, temping bowlers, pool players. We've done more shows in the last 12 months than we did in 12 months before COVID. Uh, you know, and have, have they made money? Yeah, some of them, some haven't. It doesn't really make any difference. Money, the, the money bit is just part of a game you play. You know, you want to be, you want to do better each year, don't you? You want, it's like, you know, when you play sport, you'd like to score more hundreds next year. You set yourself targets and business, you set the same targets. Business is very much like sport. You want to win. And how do you win? You know, a sport, you know how you win. You beat the opposition, don't you? Yeah. Well, business is exactly the same. Just we're not beating it. We're smashing it at the pulp. No, I, like, uh, it's um, matchroom, is, matchroom boxing is... On the rise, 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 and some more, and, and there's some mouth-watering clashes oh. that we're all on the verge of hopefully getting. Oh. I mean, Fury, well. Fury Josh you know, is incredible. That's going to be something monumentous. Well, Fury against Joshua is the biggest fight, I would say, probably in history. Certainly financially, everyone division, it's a massive amount of money. It, but there's there's a lot more to it than that. In the same way, it's a lot more to Matron than me and Eddie. I mean, there's there's a lot of people that have committed to the cause, if you like. And you know, it it does feel like which I which I always wanted to be. It does feel like a family. 
And the family extends beyond. It extends to the Gilmores, if you like, or, you know, the other people that we do business with over the years that if we have a social, they're in, they're, in, they're part of the family, you know. I had a, a birthday party when I'm 70, that was a few years ago now, I don't know, four or 500 people. And I looked around the room, I thought all these people are like part of the extended family, you know. All my employees were there, obviously. But there was lots of mates, the Gilmores were right up there and people like that, that we'd done business with over the years. They wouldn't have been the same without them there. And the fact that we've been successful sometimes upsets people, but that's what we, we're just trying to, we're just trying to be winners. We're just there's trying always, to be There's always somebody somewhere that wants to have a pop, but that's just the nature of the beast. Oh, but listen, but bring, them, off. bring them on. If we can't cope with that, I mean, I'm looking at it, it's like, I mean, Eddie gets mobbed everywhere he goes. Uh, he never moans about it. It goes with the turf. People are having a pop about, oh, you know, all you're interested in is this. And this. They have no idea what we're interested in, by the way, at all. But they've got a right to express their views. They're entitled to it. And I've got every right to ignore it, which I do every time. Barry Hearn, um, I'm going to ask you to stay on for five minutes afterwards just so I can catch you for five minutes. It has been yeah. an absolute pleasure, sir. You have uh, exceeded my expectations and some more. Obviously, I know who you are. I know everything you've done, but to listen to you on a one-on-one, -on -one, and I'm sure whoever is going to watch this is going to thoroughly enjoy the insight um, that, you've, that you've given today. I wish you all the best with absolutely everything. Um, I'd like to see you. You were saying when, when, when life returns a wee bit normal, you're going to go off, have some holidays. You should take the good lady and go and have some relaxing time. I'm sure Eddie's got everything in hand. Um, and you should you should spend some time, more time on the beach now, Barry, I think. I've got time to relax when I'm dead, mate. Don't worry about that. I think Eddie will be the governor and I'll take a backward step. But when you're passionate about something, it's not work. It's just what you love to do. And so I'm just going to do, as I've always done, whatever I want. And well, most, of the most of the time that's work-related, but it may be a bit more cricketing, a bit more golf, a bit more fishing. I'm not a lazing around. I don't sit on sofas. Not well, my night. Whatever you do, I'm, I, I'm, I'll be following closely as always. Well, listen, um, best, of, well, best of luck to you. It's been good to chat to you, my friend. Absolutely. Just, Just stay healthy. Two minutes and I'll catch you. Okay, mate.